0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So I'll be talking about active surveillance, one of the options for prostate cancer, and I'll go over kind of the background about active surveillance, what it is, how it's being utilized at UCSF and elsewhere understanding if active surveillance is right for you and then how we can tailor it or better optimize management. So make the burden less without compromising care. So for the background, generally speaking, when someone has prostate cancer, depending on on their risk and staging, all the information that people would talk about with their providers, active surveillance is one of those treatment strategies. And active surveillance has been the preferred management strategy for low and very low risk prostate cancer. Now, active surveillance was a response to concerns about over-detection and over-treatment that was brought when PSA first became widespread. Screening was taken up by the vast majority within the urology community. Uptake by active surveillance has really paved the way for the response and upgraded assessment to the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force when it comes to early detection of prostate cancer. And the underpinning here is that we do not forget that cancer is there or ignore it, but it's accurate monitoring so that we can identify small subclinical changes before they become large clinical problems. Now, the key is really not to completely, again, ignore prostate cancer, but rather delay some of the costs and burden, both functional and monetary, of treatment without compromising cancer care. And it's really compliant with screening and treatment guidelines. It's based on the rationale that the Initial assessment is accurate, so you have a clear understanding of the disease that's currently present within the prostate, and that there is accurate monitoring that is close so that we can identify clinical, subclinical progression before it becomes a a larger macroscopic problem. Active surveillance is really about the timing of treatment and the timing between diagnosis and when someone may need surgery or radiation or another treatment strategy. Now, active surveillance since its inception has continued to increase in utilization for men with low-risk disease, both at UCSF and across the country over the last five to 10 years. We've seen an uptick across the country in the use of active surveillance, even when we go down to specific states or counties. But what we see is that when we start to look at different states and counties, there's broad variation in places that are currently using it and those that have yet to utilize active surveillance as much as they could, as alluded to by Dr. Kuberberg's uh, discussion earlier. Now, the key here is really concerns about outcomes. If we're delaying treatment, is there a risk of poor outcomes because of that? And we see that active surveillance provides a way for patients to be free of treatment for some interval without, again, compromising impact on survival or risk of metastases over time. Now, we looked at this here within the UCSF cohort and uh, published this roughly about two years ago, looking at a cohort of nearly 1,500 men. Overall survival of those who were on active surveillance that we monitored over a median follow-up of 77 months was 97%, 0.3% of patients died from prostate cancer and 15 patients uh, progressed to metastatic disease. And when we look further, we see that these are patients who weren't truly followed by active surveillance, but deviated from our protocol in some way. Now, is active surveillance right for you? That is the question that has always been on our mind. How do we carefully select patients for whom active surveillance would, get, would be a good option? And we always talk about this being low-risk disease, but thankfully, the advent of new technology and our greater understanding of prostate cancer in general, has allowed us to add further characteristics or better select these patients for whom active surveillance would provide benefit. Now, one thing that we look at in patients is PSA density. Dr. Cooperberg defined this before, and what we see is that people with a lower PSA density is what we call favorable. In other words, there is less likelihood of progression in terms of disease changing over time. People with a higher PSA density, greater than 0.15, have a higher risk of biopsy progression or of us finding that the cancer has changed at that next biopsy. Now, what we see is also that MRIs have increasingly been used to help us visualize the prostate and understand what disease may be present in the prostate as we start to risk stratify patients. We have a rating system if we find something within the prostate called a Pyrad score. And that score ranges from one to five. And we know that Pyrad scores of four or five increase the chance that we will find greater, uh, more aggressive cancer at the time of the next biopsy. And we noticed that with serial biopsy over time, we do have a proportion of patients where even the pyrads change will help us understand that they may, have, may be at higher risk for disease progression or a change of the cancer under uh, under the microscope after biopsy, and that these patients may benefit from a transition from active surveillance to treatment. But we have to understand that the MRI in and of itself is strictly an image, it does not replace the biopsy. This goes both in terms of how we sample the prostate and how we use it moving forward for men we are monitoring uh, during active surveillance. Now, what we see is that several characteristics help us understand who may be a continued candidate for active surveillance versus those that may benefit from treatment. Now, is active surveillance right for everyone? Oftentimes, I personally see patients in the clinic who've been told, well, I'm very young, so I think getting treatment up front will lead to better survival, lead to better recovery. And what we notice is that when we are looking at this within our own cohort over a long period, we looked at patients who uh, were younger at time of diagnosis and we saw that age was not really associated with any of the outcomes in terms of time from treatment to recurrence after delayed uh, surgery, meaning that younger patients can be suitable candidates for active surveillance with careful selection. Just being young in and of itself does not mean that you need to go on to surgery radiation again if you're a candidate for active surveillance. Now, some other aspects that were discussed earlier as well is how we examine the cancer that is present on your biopsy. We know that Gleason 4, Gleason grade 4 disease, is an umbrella term. And within there, you'll see a list of the different types of patterns we see under the microscope that confer different amounts of risk for progression or for change of that cancer over time. So, that investigation is part of our standard protocol here to understand what is typically present under the microscope and who may actually be a still a candidate for active surveillance even if there's a small amount of Gleason 4 and thankfully here this is something that we do but it's not typically reported everywhere uh, by all pathologists so that's why when patients come to see us within UCSF we will often have their slides re-reviewed by our GU pathologists so we understand the volume of Gleason 4 and the patterns that we're seeing under the microscope Now, we've also looked at if you have uh, grade group 3 plus 4 disease, excuse me, Gleason score 3 plus 4, does that mean you always need to go on to surgery? And what we found was that that's not necessarily true. For those patients who have a low volume of Gleason 3 plus 4 and those who have favorable pathology uh, characteristics under a microscope, there was no increased risk of progression or biochemical failure. But again, that requires reporting this additional investigation that we commonly do here to understand who may still be a possible candidate for active surveillance, even in the presence of Gleason three plus four. Now, particularly for active surveillance, historically there's been a concern about outcomes that we've seen with African American men in disparities related to prostate cancer treatment and survival. This is largely because there's not much data out there yet. The data that we have as I discussed before, is incomplete. There's a lot that we still need to understand. Within active surveillance cohorts, there are few African-American men, because often when they are diagnosed, some urologists and some patients may not be interested in including them in active surveillance cohorts, or there may be a concern about this increased risk of poor outcomes, and thus they go on to surgery or radiation, even if they were potential candidates for active surveillance. We know that race, as it's described and as it has been characterized, is not a direct correlate for biology. Race impacts or is related to all of these other factors that are not related to biology. And thus it muddies the water if we go based on African-American race alone as a deciding factor for patients' candidacy for active surveillance. We acknowledge now, and it, it have slowly been increasing our information that the differences in prostate cancer outcomes, particularly in African-American men and those who may have inherited germline mutations, are multifactorial. But these are special discussions and situations that need further evaluation in discussions between providers and their patients. Now, how do we make it less burdensome? The key for active surveillance is, again, close and timely monitoring. So that means multiple tests. That means biopsies at regular intervals over time. And what we've seen is that the classification over time can be identified, or those who are at greater risk of classification or changes of their disease at the next biopsy can be identified by certain factors or clinical tools that we have. One of those ps say density, which we discussed before, as well as genomic scores, something that had been touched on earlier as well, are things that allow us to identify patients who may have, who may be at higher risk of changes on the next biopsy. And those patients, those characteristics help us identify patients that may have a shorter interval on active surveillance compared to others. Now, making active surveillance more efficient while being less intense is the goal. That's what we are all trying to go for. And it's truly understanding which patients may be okay for active surveillance, which patients, if we look at them as the entire person in terms of their health and everything else, may be more suitable for watchful waiting, who would benefit from treatment up front versus can we do active surveillance in a less intense fashion for a subset of patients for whom active surveillance would be a good option? but are hesitant around the burden of testing. Now, the way that we do this is being worked on right now. So we continue to use the technology, the tests that we have to help us better stratify these patients, but there's ongoing research done at UCSF, UCSS, UCSF, excuse me, and elsewhere, helping us understand, okay, who needs that next biopsy? Who needs that next biopsy at a shorter interval, versus longer, so on and so forth. So in conclusion, actor surveillance is an option for patients with low-risk disease. And as we continue to develop new strategies, we can better fine-tune those patients who may benefit from actor surveillance over that time period. Again, it's timing of definitive treatment with surgery, radiation, or another treatment strategy, and identifying those people who could, for some time, avoid the costs, both monetary and functional, of treatment safely. So again, active surveillance, preferred method of treatment for men with very low, low risk, and then selected patients with Gleason 3 plus 4 disease. New technology our MRIs, genomic testing have helped us identify patients who are better candidates versus those who may have a shorter interval in active surveillance. And this is largely driven by our interest to maintain lifestyle and avoid some of the functional monetary costs that are associated with definitive treatment. Again, we still see that although overall the use of active surveillance has increased over time, it's widely variable and dependent on many different factors. And it may be challenged or a subset of patients on active surveillance may opt for other strategies uh, that are currently being used and growing. Thank you again. Uh, one question in the chat. Maybe you can feel this one. What's the difference between active surveillance and watchful waiting? Oh, yes. We get this a lot. So, Or some people call it uh, active watching. Right. So uh, the main difference here is actor surveillance truly is active. We are monitoring your disease with blood tests. We are talking about the intervals between biopsies, utilization of genetic testing and MRIs to characterize your disease and watch it closely over time. So we see very small changes early. Watchful waiting is largely us essentially waiting for symptoms to arise. So we're not utilizing all these tests the way that we would during active surveillance. So although sometimes these are kind of grouped together because they're both seen as not surgery, not radiation, not an invasive treatment, they're very different in terms of who may be suitable for either. So it definitely requires a discussion with your providers to talk about that and figure out which group you may fall into. Super. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV,